0: I'm going to start by telling you the story of a woman named Isabella Baumfree. She was a Dutch-speaking African-American woman born into slavery in rural New York in 1797. Isabella was also known as Belle. She endured great misery as a young female slave, but even in the midst of it, she grew to be a woman of great faith. She regularly built a temple of brush in the woods—an old African tradition. And there she communicated with God, as if God were a familiar presence. She was forced to marry another slave she didn't love, and she bore him five children. Isabella had worked tirelessly for her master, John DeMont for 16 years, when he promised her her freedom. But after the master reneged on his promise and refused to let her go, Isabella listened to God when God told her to walk away from slavery. So with her youngest baby, Sophia, in her arms, 29-year-old Isabella left DeMont's farm in 1826 and walked to freedom. She found her way to the home of a sympathetic white couple who took her and her baby in. And while there, Bell learned that her son Peter, who was then five years old, had been illegally sold by DeMont to an owner in Alabama. So Bell took the issue to court. And after months of legal proceedings, she did get back her son. Isabella Bomfrey became one of the first black women to go to court against a white man and win the case. In 1843, Isabella had a pivotal experience with God. She sensed the Holy Spirit's call to change her name from Isabella Bomfrey to Sojourner Truth and to embark on a mission to travel and preach for the abolition of slavery. Through the decades that followed, she would become a seminal voice in the fight for freedom for all African-American slaves, alongside significant abolitionists like Frederick Douglass. And she would also work with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, bringing her own unique and very much needed perspective as a former slave to the fight for women's rights. Nell Painter is a biographer who wrote this of Sojourner Truth, The force that brought her from the sole murder of slavery into the authority of public advocacy was the power of the Holy Spirit. Her ability to call upon a supernatural power gave her a resource claimed by millions of black women and by disempowered people the world over. Without a doubt, it was Truth's religious faith that transformed her from Isabella, domestic servant, into Sojourner Truth. A hero for three centuries at least. I begin with this story because I think it actually has a fair amount of resonance with another story that we're going to look at today. We've been exploring over the last couple of Sundays stories that come to us from the very beginning of the Bible, right? Starting with the opening chapters of Genesis. So we looked at creation and then a couple of weeks ago our guest preacher Rabbi Dorothy Richman led us through a story on the uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. Today, we're going to continue the series looking at Genesis as we enter kind of a new part of the narrative, a section where the storytellers seem to be shifting. Most scholars think they kind of shift from a more primordial mythic kind of storytelling to more of what we might think of as, as a historical narrative. Okay? It doesn't mean it's accurate history as, as maybe historians would think of it today, but it has more of that flavor. Okay? And as the authors began to tell the story of a particular people that gave rise to the Jewish nation and faith, there's kind of a shift from like the, the origin of the earth and the cosmos to what does it mean for us to be the people of God that we are? What's the origin of our nation? Right? And the shift happens really around Genesis 12, when we meet the man we'd come to know as Abraham. Okay? He's the man portrayed as the father of the Hebrew people through which would eventually come Judaism, and by extension, Jesus, and the early church. But rather than focus just on Abraham himself, the character we're going to zero in on is a woman found in the Abraham narrative. Okay, But before we look closely at her, we need to understand the context in which she appears. So you might know the story of Abraham. Initially, he's Abram. He's a successful businessman, a man of wealth and privilege in the great metropolitan city of his time, which was Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram was married to a woman named Sarai. She was known for her remarkable beauty. The one thing this couple, in many ways like an it couple of their day, seemed to lack was children. And in the patriarchal culture in which they lived, that lack was a major deficit. But by the time we meet them, the couple is very advanced in age. We're told he's 75, she's 65, Likely they've long since given up having any children of their own. But it's to this successful but childless businessman that the God of the Hebrew people, eventually known as Yahweh, speaks in Genesis 12. And God tells him to go, to take his family and move to the land that God will show him. And this God promises to make his family into a great nation, which will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so Abram sets out on his great journey to Canaan, the land of promise, inspired by the word from this deity that Abram had encountered, which carried in it implicitly, right, a promise to receive the one thing he lacked, children, through trials and setbacks. He, his wife, their servants, and livestock, they all eventually make it to Canaan. But the promise that Abram received from God remained unfulfilled. The years advanced and advanced, and yet Sarai's belly was flat, her body barren. Still, God continued to speak to Abram and tell him that his ancestors would number more than the stars in the sky. And that's where we pick up our story In Genesis 16. Okay, so let's just start by reading the first six verses. These are on your sheet or you can read them along with me on the screen. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you! I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl's in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. All right. We're going to stop there just to consider a little bit of what we've learned so far. So in this passage, this new character enters the scene. The slave girl named Hagar. Who is she? In the story itself, we see that how you answer that question might actually depend on your perspective. Because to Sarai and Abram, she's merely a slave. They never actually once refer to her by name. Do you see that? Sarai simply calls her my slave. To Sarai, she's not so much a person as a possession. And at this point in the narrative, a very important one. Historical evidence shows us that Sarai's suggestion to Abram was very much in keeping with the norms of the day. Free women of means who were unable to bear children of their own often gave their slave girls to their husbands as surrogates to bear the mistress's children. Okay, Sarai would be considered the mother of the children. The slave would have no legal rights to them. It would be Sarai's children as if she had borne them herself. If any of you are fans of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, this would sound familiar, right? This is basically the template for Gilead, okay? So to Sarai, this slave girl, she's just a means to an end, a way for her to finally have a family. But Sarai and Abram don't have the only perspective on this young girl. From the first, the narrator gives her a name, Hagar, By doing so, it's like the author is reminding us that despite what Sarai and Abram might think, this young woman is more than simply an alternative womb for Sarai, right? She's a person with a name and a story of her own. Hagar, the slave girl, is given to Abram. He sleeps with her, she conceives, and as her belly begins to grow, so does her value in the household. This young woman is now more than just a slave. She's carrying the child of the household patriarch. Likely for the first time in her life, Hagar is given attention and status. People notice her. She feels proud. She is empowered. She's less like a slave, more like a free person. At least for these nine months, this child is hers. No one can take that from her. The, te- the text says she began to look on her mistress with contempt. Likely, Hagar begins to see herself as an equal. Perhaps even Sarai's better because she's giving Abram what Sarai never could. But this perceived lack of respect is infuriating to Sarai. She runs to Abram complaining, asking him to put the slave in her place he impotently gives Sarai permission to do just that. And her treatment is harsh enough that despite the immense danger that could come to her and her unborn child, Hagar runs away. This is where the story takes an especially interesting turn. So we're going to read on starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar Near a spring in the desert, and it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, El Roi. you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Royi. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay. Before we unpack this, let's take a moment just to define some of these names. Because they do lend some insight to the story. The storytellers want us to know these things. Okay, so I have some fill-in-the-blanks if you want to do them. Hagar, I think we have a slide for all this, Elliot, the names. Hagar means one who flees. Okay, that ends up being appropriate. Then there's Ishmael, the name that God tells Hagar to name, her son. And that's God hears then the name that Hagar gave to God, she calls him not Yahweh, which is the name that would be ascribed to the God of, the, of Abraham. She calls him El Roi, the God who sees me. And finally, we have the name of the well or the spring where she meets this God, Be'er Lahai Royi, which means well of the living one who sees me. So what's happened here? Hagar ventures out on her own into the desert, this desert between Canaan and Egypt. And this is a very dangerous proposition for a number of reasons. First of all, she's heading out on her own, a pregnant woman in a desert. Okay, that's not a hospitable place to maintain a pregnancy. But furthermore, she's risking even worse treatment as a runaway slave if she should be caught. Slaves in that day were generally branded. So if they tried to run away, they would be returned to their owners. And any free person who was caught harboring or even assisting a runaway slave was to be executed. So any free person who helped return a slave to his or her owner would be rewarded. So there's a bounty on her anywhere she goes away from Abram. And it's quite possible that Hagar would have been unable to hide her status as a runaway slave. And even if she wasn't branded, she's a single pregnant young woman with no means to provide for herself or for her unborn child in a patriarchal culture where that's just not good. Okay? So however you look at things, Hagar is in a desperate, impossible place. But there in the desert, Hagar the slave girl had an encounter that changed her story. The text says she met the angel of the Lord. So who is that? Well, there are actually a couple of interpretations of this phrase. Some biblical scholars think, you know, she saw an angel who's there to communicate with her on behalf of God. That makes sense. But others actually have reason to believe that the way that the words that are um, being represented here in Hebrew and what we're supposed to actually understand um, isn't that this is one of God's angelic created beings, but that this is actually a manifestation of God's very self what theologians will call a theophany okay that's the that's the word if you want to copy it down that's the seminary word for today theophany okay that's a god appearing in human form there's a few places we see things like this throughout the hebrew bible okay essentially christians often understand this to be basically a pre-New Testament appearance from Jesus himself. Okay, interesting theory, right? Whoever it is, this being clearly communicates directly with Hagar on on behalf of Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And God's message to Hagar may seem strange in some ways to us, even cruel, right? The being encourages her to return to Sarai and submit to her. How can that be God's best for her? I mean, isn't that that returning Hagar to her place of neglect and abuse, the oppressed, returning to the oppressor? Yet we also know the desperate nature of her circumstances. In the present circumstances, choices between very bad and even worse, return to her mistress was the safest option, both for the safety of Hagar and her child, So while God asked Hagar to do that which seemed confusing, even wrong, painful, there's something else happening. God also assured her of God's provision for her. She wasn't going back empty-handed. She was going back with her own covenant from the divine. This divine being spoke to her of the child she would bear. God pointed out that this would be her son, that through him, her descendants would increase. Not Abram's, not Sarai's. This is a very important point. This is something she hasn't yet encountered. One who sees Hagar not as a womb, but as a mother. Further, God painted a picture for Hagar of who her son would be. And we might find this imagery strange, right? This wild donkey of a man in our contemporary context. But essentially what I think God is communicating is that Hagar's son Ishmael would have the freedom that she so desired. Remember, Hagar's name means one who flees. It reflects her desperation to risk everything in order to secure freedom for herself and her unborn child. And God's message to Hagar assures her that her son Ishmael and his descendants would not be slaves like her, but would live free. On their own terms. They would be not put down or oppressed by others. And this word was a word of great hope to Hagar. So she did what God asked, despite the fear, the courage it must have required. So, as we consider the story of Hagar, the slave girl, who lived nearly 4,000 years ago, maybe, what messages? Might God be speaking to us through her story today? I want to suggest a few. First, the story of Hagar reminds us that God sees the people that others refuse to see and listens to the voices that others refuse to hear. God sees the people that others refuse to see and listens to the voices that others refuse to hear to hear. Hagar was less than a person to Sarai and Abram. But God, the same God who made Hagar, who made Ishmael, saw them, cared for them, heard their cries. This is what was so moving to Hagar. This God was not just the God of the wealthy male of privilege, Abram. This God saw her The invisible one, regarded by others as just a collection of body parts, a container for somebody else's dream. Think about it. She's a woman, a foreign woman, of color, a slave, reduced to such little worth in her culture, she's not even given the right to nurture the child she's forced to bear by the man she's forced to be raped by. But what an unjust, broken system calls acceptable, God does not see as just. What an unjust, broken system calls acceptable, God does not see as just. Amen? God would not let Hagar's cries or the cries of her child go unheard. God responded to his daughter in an intimate way in Genesis 16. Don't miss this. Hagar becomes the first person in the Bible after the fall from the Garden of Eden to see a manifestation of God. With her own eyes. She's the first one in the Bible after the fall to see God. Not Abram, not Sarai, not Noah. It's Hagar. It's right. She should wonder at the fact. She has now seen God, but just as wondrous, she marvels at the fact that this God has seen her. In that moment, Hagar gives this God a name. To her, this is not Yahweh, the Lord, the transcendent being above all. This is the God who sees me, the one who sees the invisible, the one who sees the poor the God who sees the outcast, the God who sees the oppressed. And not only does this God see, but this God draws near. This God brings comfort to the comfortless, hope to the hopeless. And while on the surface, Hagar's circumstances may not have changed in an instant, everything has because she has seen her God and she knows this God has seen her. Some of you have heard me tell my story maybe more than once. So if that's you, um, I ask your grace as I tell it again because I know not everyone has. And it feels relevant. So I'm going to share a little bit. I grew up in Southern California, uncommitted, unexperienced in any way, real, spiritually. And then through some miraculous to me encounters, I came to faith in Jesus in the late 90s as a college student in Chicago pursuing a degree in theater. It changed the trajectory of my life. I felt like an unlikely Christian who didn't fit in traditional church structures in so many ways, but who couldn't deny the healing power I'd experienced encountering the divine in Jesus. And I longed to be a part of creating spaces for others like me to have their own unique encounters and over many years, I came to believe that my longing to cultivate these kind of spaces was ultimately an invitation to pastor a church startup in Berkeley, California, that would welcome all kinds of people, and would in- that would include being fully LGBTQ inclusive. By 2013, I had moved cities to train on staff under another female lead pastor while I was having babies and attending seminary. I was a year from finishing my degree and from our hoped-for move here to begin the work of starting a church. I'd been preparing for that project now for over a decade. I felt ready. I went through all the assessments needed in my denomination of churches to be blessed as a church planter. As a woman, I was countercultural, to be sure, but my denomination was very encouraging. i passed the assessments with flying colors. In fact, they wanted me to be kind of like the face of female church planters, the model for our movement to learn from, and I felt really hopeful about what was to come. But then the conversation about how the churches in this movement were going to handle LGBTQ inclusion began to happen publicly in ways that made it clear that pastors like me, who wanted to start inclusive churches, who hoped there was room in the movement at least to agree to disagree about the issue, wouldn't be welcome to remain a part of the greater community. Things came to a head during an exchange at our denomination's national conference. I was face to face with the person who held all the power to bless me to move forward with this group of churches that had become my family or to end that possibility. And as I sat down with him, I felt as if the Spirit of God was remarkably close. I felt like the spirit actually brought me out of myself. And I was like watching this moment from the ceiling, like an out-of-body experience. And I saw from above this man and I in our little chairs in this church lobby. And God was saying, be aware, Leah. This is a significant moment. This is the moment you're being kicked out of this movement. He may not say those words, but that's what's happening right now. And it was. That was the moment that I was told because I couldn't come to a theological agreement with church leadership about gay Christians, this was no longer my family. It was the moment I was told I had to decide if this was the hill I was willing to die on or not. And as I stood my ground, committed myself to what I couldn't deny Jesus had been calling me into for over a decade, it was the moment that the bridges were burned. I could no longer go back. To the community that had been my home for many years and nurtured my faith. My perspective was now irrelevant. My journey was dismissed. My voice was silenced. In that season, the pastors in, my, in the church I was serving on staff... Who were still supportive had been exploring a newer prayer model called Emmanuel Prayer. And the premise of Emmanuel Prayer is that Jesus was given the name Emmanuel in Scripture, a name that means God with us. And Emmanuel Prayer considers in what ways Jesus might actually show up in the landscape of our everyday circumstances. It's a prayer model centered in memory. So somebody recalls a memory in prayer and asks Jesus to kind of imaginatively reveal where Jesus may have been or what he might have been doing when that event took place. So a couple months after my grand showdown and expulsion from the movement of churches, I was in a pretty low space. I was deeply grieved. I was quite depressed. I did not know where this whole dream would go from there. But in that season, my friends prayed with me. And in my mind, it was as if Jesus showed up in the memory. And what he was doing surprised me. I saw a picture of myself sitting in that chair, being mansplained and berated by this person of power. My head hung low, was fighting back the tears of anger, grief, shame. But Jesus didn't show any of that angst on his face. Instead, Jesus was calmly and coolly kneeling on the floor, behind me and one of his hands was in the small of my back but the other hand was like doodling in the carpet and the picture reminded me of a moment in the bible when jesus shows up for a woman who's being unjustly targeted in order to entrap jesus and as her accusers bring her to jesus enraged by her participation in an adulterous relationship calling for her stoning what does jesus do He calmly doodles in the dirt. He doesn't engage with their anger. He calmly diffuses it by actually revealing the weakness of the accusers. And he refuses to condemn the woman, serving as her defender instead. In this moment, Jesus was powerfully revealing to me that in that painful experience, where my humanity was unseen, when my personhood was unacknowledged, when I, like the woman brought forward for stoning, or like Hagar, was used and discarded to serve someone else's agenda, Jesus was with me. Jesus saw me, Jesus heard me, Jesus understood what was happening, and wasn't rattled by the false accusations. I believe all of us, in some way, have had moments like Hagar. All of us have had moments like the woman accused of adultery. Sadly, because of different experiences of marginalization in our culture, we have to be real. Some of us have had a lot more of them than others. But all of us at some point or another suffer the tragic effects of brokenness that have caused us to feel isolated, alone, misunderstood, unloved, and whatever the circumstances in our lives, we all have places we need to hear the truth that God sees you. Hagar reminds us that in those experiences, God sees, hears, draws near to us to reveal God's self to us. Amen. The second important lesson I draw from this story is that God brings redemption and healing even to the consequences of injustice and brokenness in our world god brings redemption and healing even to the consequences of injustice and brokenness in our world hagar's story was not supposed to happen slavery's not supposed to happen mass incarceration of people of color is not supposed to happen bankruptcy from medical bills not supposed to happen over 4 years of uncontaminated water in Flint, Michigan, and apparently also in Oakland. Not supposed to happen, right? The trauma induced by separating children from their parents who are simply trying to bring their kids to a place where greater safety and security, that is not supposed to happen. Whatever cultural justification Sarai and Abram might have offered, whatever laws they thought they were observing, didn't make their actions right. God did not call Abram and Sarai to Canaan for this. God's intention was to work the miraculous. God intended to build a nation through Abram, not by Sarai's strategies and schemes, but through God's mighty power. God had promised again and again that God would give Abram children, but Sarai blamed that same God for withholding children from her. You see that the Lord has prevented me from having children, she told Abram. It's as if she was saying, if God can't fulfill his promises, I'm just going to have to help him along. The story echoes one, told only 13 chapters before in Genesis. And in that narrative echo, the storyteller is letting us know implicitly that the choice being made here is not good. A wife begins to question God's care and provision. She offers her husband forbidden fruit. He takes and eats. And in that act of rebellion, perfect community with God is broken. Like Eve before her, Sarai offers her husband an opportunity to take their fate in their own hands. Like Adam before him, Abram's easily persuaded, broken relationship with God bears negative consequences. But miraculously, that's not the end of the story, is it? In the future, Abram and Sarai will be given new names. They will become Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish faith, and by extension, the Christian church. In 13 years, 90-year-old Sarah will bear 100-year-old husband, a son named Isaac. God will display God's glory, even through those who doubted it, would be done. And that's not all. The casualties of Sarai and Abram's grave moral error will not simply be collateral damage. God intervenes on behalf of those who, through no fault of their own, become tangled in this web that Sarai and Abram weave. God brings hope, freedom, redemption to the slave named Hagar and the baby named Ishmael. There's an epilogue to Hagar's story. When Hagar returns to Abraham, something shifts. Her story is changed. She bears a son to Abram, and he's beloved and cared for by his father, but he is never, he is never given to Sarai. He remains Hagar's son, the whole story. Thirteen years later, when Isaac's finally born to Sarah, Sarah once again is overcome with jealousy, fears Ishmael will inherit alongside Isaac, so she drives the two of them away but now Ishmael's old enough to survive alongside his mother and help provide for her. And Hagar and Ishmael are miraculously again met and cared for by God in the desert, and they finally achieve as a family the freedom that Hagar now has been longing for for so long. In fact, tradition in the Muslim faith believes that Hagar's family line becomes the Arab people, and devout Muslims honor her as the matriarch of their faith and ancestor to the Prophet Muhammad. For Hagar and Ishmael, God delivers on God's promises. And to the consequences of sin and brokenness, God brings real redemption and healing. One more takeaway I believe God has for us. And that is to invite us to lift up the stories of God's encounters with those on the margins. I believe this is a reminder that God invites us to lift up the stories of God's encounters with those on the margins. And that means at times, both having the courage to tell our own stories, as well as honoring and amplifying others' stories, particularly of people suffering oppression and God's solidarity with them. We must tell these stories even when, and perhaps especially when, the inclusion of these stories complicates our narratives, right? Remember that when we say our sacred texts are divinely inspired, most of us don't mean that we believe God dictated a book word for word for humans to like write down and then worship as the words of God. We mean that the spirit of God has been present in some way in a process that the community of God has engaged in over millennia of collecting and writing down a number of stories, poems, songs, letters that tell the greater story of their faith. And our faith. And what's fascinating and perhaps points to the hope that God is actually alive and indeed involved in this process after all, is that our narratives are messy and include stories like Hagar's. Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill famously said, history is written by the victors. And when we look at the ways we tell our grand stories of cultural identity, of nationalism, that is often true. Let's be real, white supremacy has long been the filter through which our own nation has told its story as European immigrants shaped a narrative that celebrated their own manifest destiny in their new world and repressed the stories of theft of land, genocide of indigenous people, the kidnapping, enforced enslavement, rape, and torture of persons from the African continent. To tell the stories of both starkly alongside each other has often been seen as too complicating. And so the filter of suppression of narratives continues in full strength today. But here in the ancient stories of our faith, Hagar's stories included, despite the fact it doesn't make the patriarch of the Jewish faith look very good. Right? It would have been a much cleaner narrative for Abraham and Sarah, for Hagar's story to be forgotten or at least minimized. But the fact that it's here means the community of God at some point heard this story and sensed the spirit of God in it and its truth. They recognized its importance. How would this story have come to be included? We must assume that if the story is based in any historical truth, it began with Hagar herself finding a safe place to share her story. Right? There were no witnesses to the theophany in the desert. She was the witness. At some point, she found a safe community of people to share her story with, and they recognized the weight of it. They felt the divine voice in it. They shared the story, and over time, it becomes part of the narrative, a a complicating part, to be sure, but a necessary one that reminds us that our leaders, even those we gratefully owe our heritage to and desire to honor, they are also flawed human beings. Our leaders make mistakes. And sometimes they have severe consequences. They participate in systems of oppression that harm real people. And again and again, when that happens, God sees the suffering that those with power and privilege are often blind to. And God accompanies the Haggars. The women threatened with stoning. The sojourner truths. All of us who find our stories threatening to be silenced. And the Spirit brings redemption, grace, and empowerment to let our stories live. So I end with this question. What story do you need to tell? What story do you need to tell? What story do you need to amplify? What would it mean, Haven, for us to be a community that lives into this part of the heritage of the people of God, creating a safe space, not just for all of us to be, but for those complicated stories to be told? to be lifted up, and for the spirit to be honored and heard in them. This haven is what I believe we are being called to fiercely pursue, cultivating the safety, the openness, the discernment needed to allow these stories to be an important part of the narrative of faith we are weaving as a community. Amen? My hope and prayer is that as these stories come forward, as they're shared and honored, each of you and myself, like Hagar, will have your own wondrous experience of being seen and heard and known by the divine, leading you yourself to declare, I have seen the God who sees me. Amen.